Boy, have we got a treat in store for us today. About nine months ago, I started a master's program out at George Fox University in Portland. And I was at a backyard barbecue at the dean of the seminary's house. And it was the cohort, which is the classmates that I'm working through the program with. And then they had set up as a requirement to the course an internship, which was which had a coaching piece to it. They had some of the coaches there at that gathering, and I was meeting them. And I had the privilege about nine months ago to meet Jared and Ann Roth. They were there. We were eating together. And there was just an instant affinity, me with them, them with me, I think. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'll let you talk about that. But Jared and Ann are big dog church planters. They've planted churches all over the place. They've been a part of institutional church planting through a denomination for a long, long time. And the fact that I've gotten the privilege of being coached by Jared over the last nine months as well, uh, maybe you haven't seen it, but I think I'm better. I think (laughs) I'm better as a result. And so it is a real privilege. They've been up at Big Sky at our condo up there all week playing and loving the Big Sky. Right When you live in Portland, this is just nice, isn't it, where we live? Nothing against Portland, of course. It's a fine town, but look at this. Like, Look at where we live, right? Yes. Yeah. was a little contrived, I think. Would you please give a very warm Journey Church welcome to our friend Jared Rock. (laughs) Uh, Well, good morning, Journey. We have heard uh, spectacular things about you, so I want you to know that if uh, all all of the first impressions I have about you, if they're wrong, they're way too good. It's just that's the only way it could go. Uh, your pastor, Brian, he just brags on you. I mean, it's almost disgusting how much he loves you. And uh, then we got to meet uh, Dana and uh, John and Michelle and Caleb and Brandon and the team. And, and uh, you know, when we tell them how great we think they are because they are, uh, they then talk about you. So it's almost a little intimidating for a guest to come and to be here today because uh, using one of your pastor's favorite words, you are a stellar church. <laughs> stellar church. I want you to know it's a journey as a stellar church. <laughs> Ann and I are just uh, passionate about uh, Jesus and about young and growing churches. And I want to just tell you just a little bit about our life because that will give you some perspective that I hope makes sense of some of the comments that I want to make about journey. Uh, Ann and I have both had different regional and national roles, and between the two of us have been directly involved, uh, at least in some kind of oversight capacity, with the starting of genuinely uh, hundreds of churches across the U.S. And we've had the privilege of visiting many of those uh, young and emerging congregations. And out of all those stories, and they are unique and they're distinct and they're varied, we have never uh, seen Jesus do in a, in a new church, what he's doing here at Journey in this valley. It is remarkable. It is just an extension of his love and of his grace and of his mercy and of his goodness. It's extraordinary. It's unusual. Uh, I think that you know that, but we want to kind of as guests that are coming today from an outside third-party perspective say we acknowledge what Jesus is doing here, and it is a marvelous and a beautiful thing. It's a privilege for us to get today to participate with you in a little bit of this. And you know and I know that a major part of that gift of grace that was in the heart of Jesus when he launched this church was bringing your lead pastor to come and be the point person on that. And we think that God's done a great job in calling you here, Brian. Good job. Yeah. 
Well, hey, I want you to get your voting hands out for a minute here. You have one free, uh, right-handed people here, left-handed people here. You're going to want to vote uh, quickly and confidently here. Going to ask a couple of questions. You'll get to pick which kind of person you are as it relates to making decisions. First, some of us like, like the process of a decision more than the decision being made. In other words, we feel pretty good until the decision is made. You know, keeping the options open, kind of putting it off as long as we can. Once the decision is made, then we start getting a little nervous because maybe we made the wrong decision. So you, you kind of know who you are, okay? The other, the other group of us are those who we feel anxious until the decision is made. And once it's over, it's whew, now we know what we're going to do. Now we can relax, okay? Know which group you're in? Here you go. How many in the first group you like to put the decision off? You feel better before the decision is made. Yes, I see hands tentatively going up all across the, the big tent here. Yeah. How many of you are in the second group? You feel better? Oh, see, I don't even have to get it out. There we go. All right. And uh, John, about a third of the people didn't vote. You are solidly in the first group, okay? All right. Yeah. There is no letter C, just A or B. Yeah. Well, this morning, we want to take a look at two big questions in Scripture. The first one is, what are you forgetting? And the second one is, where are you focusing? And I'm going to invite you to open or in your notes, read along or notice on the screen several verses from the book of Philippians, chapter 3. We're going to jump right into the middle of a, middle of a verse, middle of verse 4, where a new paragraph begins. And we want to read from this letter from uh, the Apostle Paul. He wrote it back to a church that he had uh, started. He'd been the founding pastor. He went on a kind of an extended trip and got thrown in jail and didn't get back to you know, give talks to them on the weekend, and so he wrote him a letter. So this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. It's kind of like if Pastor Brian went off on a trip to Myanmar, a missions trip, and got thrown in jail, he'd write a letter back. It'd be called the letter from Big Brian to the wonderful church at Bozeman. Kind of a, kind of a letter thing. Here we go. And this, this is what it would say. Chapter 3, verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but of that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize 
for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I have a couple of assumptions this morning. I assume first that we're all here because we want to get to know Jesus better. Regardless of where you are on your spiritual journey, maybe you have had a committed relationship with Jesus Christ for decades. Maybe for some of us this morning, we're just in the beginning stages of discovering who Jesus is and his claims about and on our lives. Regardless of where we are in that journey, I assume that we're all here today because we want to get to know Jesus better. I also have an assumption that many of you would share some confusion with me about what it is that Jesus finished when in his dying words on the cross, he said, it is finished, what it is that he actually finished and what it is on the other hand that he left for me and for you to do because every relationship is a reciprocal relationship. Part of that confusion comes up in lives that I've observed. On one hand, there's people who are just flat out lazy slacker Christians because they're so caught up in the Jesus finished everything. It's just they kind of show up, you know, confess their sin and get forgiven and get their ticket to heaven punched. And then they just live like the devil because Jesus did it all. It's kind of sweet, but it's kind of flawed. You know, it doesn't sound right, does it? And then there's these people. I don't want to be like them either. They're just in you know, whipped up into a religious froth all the time, just working so hard, just strivers, you know, just sweating. Life is very serious. You admire them for their zeal, but you really don't want your kids to grow up to be like them either. You know, is is there some middle ground in here someplace? And so my goal this morning is to clarify for you what Jesus finished and what he left for you to do. And I hope the benefit for you is that you really have a clear understanding of how to know Jesus and how to grow in a relationship with him, which I hope is the truth that's in the middle of those two uh, wrong extremes. And so we read this passage from the Apostle Paul this morning. He's writing some stuff that these people already knew, but he's wanting to remind them about it. And we're asking two big questions today. The first one is, what are you forgetting? Because he writes in one of the last verses we read, this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind. One of my uh, uh, jobs in life and roles in life is to work with uh, entrepreneurial business leaders. And uh, three months ago, I was asked to be a part of a weekend retreat for a group of young entrepreneurs. To be in their organization, you have to be young. Uh, I don't qualify. I was by far the oldest guy there. You have to be a founder of a business And that business had to have, within a few years, grown to X millions of dollars in annual revenues. And if you meet those three criteria, then you're invited to be a part of this organization. They are high-driving, smart, confident, uh, relatively arrogant, successful (laughs) business leaders. In fact, as they were vetting me to be uh, whether or not they were going to come invite me to be the expert for one day of their three-day retreat, they told me, we only invite people that are smart, know stuff that we don't know, and make a difference in our lives and businesses before you leave. And somehow I got in. It was a great deal and got to enjoy the day with them. You know, the interesting thing was they did not ask me to come and help them grow their businesses, though that's part of what I do in life, because frankly, they're growing their businesses really well. They asked me to come and talk to them about how to grow an effective life because they knew that one of the major problems that happens in growing businesses is that the business succeeds and it kills the founders. 
And so they said, Jared, would you come and talk to us about how to deal with stress, how to organize our life in a way that our lives are being successful as well as the companies that we are starting and launching. And so I got to talk to them. And later in that morning, as we're having a conversation about how to organize life in a healthy and effective way toward the future, one of the, uh, <clears throat> the leaders, and I'll call her uh, uh, Jennifer today for our purposes, she's about 30, she's an MBA, she's very bright, she has an amazing history and background and family, and she and her husband and two other founders are starting a remarkable business that within probably three years from now will be third in market share in their in their area of business in the greater Portland metro area. And she said, Jared, now do I understand what you're saying here? Do I understand that if I go down deep within myself and discover my core values, that stuff that really makes me essentially human, that defines who I am as a distinct person, I define my core values, and then I determine my major roles in life out of which I'm going to express those values. And then I, then I decide which relationships with individuals are critical for me to advance out of those roles. So I have my values, my roles, my relationships. And then I, then I establish one, three, five, and maybe even 20 or beyond your goals for each of those roles in life. And then I begin to download those one-year goals into how I live my life on a weekly and a monthly basis. Do I understand, Jared, that what you're saying is that if I align my life that way, that I'll be aligning with the universe and then I can expect good things to happen in and through my life? That is a great question. <clears throat> and I told her so. So Jennifer, that is a great question. And then I affirmed with respect, genuine respect, the, the, the great part of that that I'm entirely in agreement with. And I told her that as well. I said, Jennifer, I agree with almost everything that what you just described, but there's one fundamental piece of that that I want to differentiate about. And I referred her back to in the packet of notes and resources that I'd provided my own personal one-sheet list of how I had done that work on my own. And I said, I want you to notice, Jennifer, that the very first goal that I have articulated there is spirit first. Excuse me, my very first core value is spirit first. And you'll notice that my role that's associated with that value is committed Christ follower. And then out of that, I have a primary relationship, and it's to get to know him better and better. So I said, Jennifer, I would differentiate this way. Instead of my going into myself to discover what makes me essentially human and to begin to articulate that and to make that the foundation of my alignment with God, I've instead chosen to go down deeper than myself, to actually go down into God and discover what's most important to him and discover God's nature and then to draw from that into my life so that my core values are absolutely shaped by the sense of purpose and meaning that I'm drawing from a relationship with God. And then, yes, I agree with the rest of that process. But I said, Jennifer, the difference is the starting point whether you start with yourself or whether you start with God. Now, why did I tell the story about Jennifer this morning? It's because the Apostle Paul told his own Jennifer-like story in the first verses that we read today. He was describing his worldview in how he understood or misunderstood from his later point of view, misunderstood that if he did these things, 
that he would rightly align himself with God. And then he could expect good things to flow into and through his life. And he expresses those things very clearly. There's seven of them. There's five of them that have to do with his background and heritage. It was a religious system, which, by the way, the Apostle Paul never disparages as he writes about it. There's only a sense of appreciation for his background, for his heritage, for his ethnicity, for the religious environment and convictions that he grew up in. But he's describing them as a part of this foundation of worldview of how he thought he was to found a relationship with God. So he said, this is who I was, and he mentions five things. Then he says, this is what I did, and he mentions two things. And in fact, the seventh one was his summary statement of how well he did on his worldview foundation of how to relate with God. He said, and I quote, as it relates to legalistic righteousness. Boy, does that just smack of self-righteousness? It just, it doesn't taste good, does it? It just kind of stinks as I say the words. As, as it relates to religious, legalistic righteousness, he says, as any good self-righteous person would do, I was flawless. Number one, right here. I paraphrase this way. No one had a longer, more pointed nose than I did. <laughs> Elevated with the put-up chin, looking down with beady eyes across my nose saying, I am better than you, extending a long, bony, pointy finger. Yeah, he had it down. Now, what he was saying was I had a worldview. I had a, I had a belief about how to relate with God. Now, how is that similar to Jennifer? She did not have the same kind of ethnic or religious heritage. She did not subscribe to the same series of rules in her life to relate with God. In fact, her worldview is very much influenced by Eastern philosophy of oneness with the universe. What's similar with the Apostle Paul, a Jewish religious Pharisee, and Jennifer, a rather New Age-influenced kind of Eastern philosophic young thinker? What's in common with them is the starting point of how to align with God. The starting point is them. My first question today is, what are you forgetting? It's what the Apostle Paul says. I used to have a belief that to be rightly related to God, I had to start with me. And if I started with who I was, and if I aligned with what I did, with what I thought would please God, then, and if I outdid everyone else, then I would have a relationship with God. And he said, this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind. Now, why was he laying that aside? Because he said, there was an intervention in my life. I met Jesus Christ. And when I saw Jesus in his largeness and in his goodness and in his greatness, suddenly everything else shrunk in comparison. Some of you are uh, probably students, and uh, all of us, I think, have been in school at some point in our life. Did you love or did you hate being graded on the curve? You know, that just kind of, that cuts both ways, doesn't it? Like how much you studied the night before the test kind of is the determining factor. A lot of us come with a mindset of God grading on the curve, don't we? Or you have friends that do. It's kind of like God is loving and I am needing love. Uh, God is perfect and I'm imperfect. But because he's loving, he's probably going to kind of grade me on the curve here. And, and frankly, I know people that aren't as good as I am. 
And I don't know exactly where I am on the curve, but I know I'm like better than some. And because I'm pretty good, I'm sure that God at least is going to cut the line on the other side of me, you know, between me. Always have friends that are worse than you. It, it'll, if this is your worldview, it'll always make you feel more comfortable and relaxed with your own life choices. But Apostle Paul says, you know, when I compared myself with others, I was really great. But when I compared myself with Jesus, man, it just wasn't even worth the comparison. We sang in one of the earlier songs today about the priceless gift of Jesus. That's what Paul's writing about. Three years ago, Ann and I uh, moved. We moved about a thousand miles and our kids were kind of getting done with us. They were finishing up their uh, undergraduate degrees and it was kind of time for them to move on as well. And we moved from a really large family home. In fact, we're a three-generation family. Anne's mom lives with us as well and has for years. So it was three generations going to two generations. And, and uh, the three of us, uh, old people, we were going to be moving to a, a three-bedroom town home out of this big family home. And our kids were going to move off to an apartment to share it for a year. So we were doing lots of downsizing. And uh, we ended up with these three piles of stuff. We had the, we're going to move this to our new place pile. And then we had the, we're going to put it out in the yard and have a yard sale pile. And then we had to, we're going to kick it to the curb and have the garbage truck haul it off pile. And it was very interesting to see how people sorted through stuff. In fact, have you ever done that as a family? This does not go down as one of your family highlight experiences. This is, this is not good for the stress-free family uh, scenario thing. We had disagreements about which pile certain things should go in. And Anne and I have a tendency to think that we have equal ownership in most of this stuff. Well, there were some things that were just nearly sacred, you know, that we don't help each other with the decisions. And that included for our kids, Jordan, our son, and Hillary, our daughter, their boxes of treasures. You know, they grew up, we're, we're middle boomers. And so our kids are the, the prodigy of middle boomers. In other words, they have been affirmed for waking up in the morning and breathing, right? They have certificates for you showed up at school today. They have medals for, you know, you, you, you thought maybe you would participate in the race. You know, there's, there's trophies for 17th place out of an 18-team soccer tournament. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. And they have these boxes of trophies and medals and certificates and ribbons and awards. And, and that's sacred stuff. And so we, we let them do the sort. And, was very interesting because we'd see them take out these trophies and they'd look at it and, and there were fun memories. And those trophies were really affirming things. It did represent, in many cases, in spite of my humor, actual achievement that they had engaged in. <laughs> Meaningful at the time, good stuff. They'd look at the trophy and they would try to put it in my pile of stuff to move and store. <laughs> no, no, it was not going to happen. <clears throat> Didn't want to stick it in their little apartment. Thought, thought about, yeah. Boy, that's affirming to be thought of as your dad. That, that really makes my day. Thank you very much. Could we chat later? Yeah. So then it was the, maybe we should put it in the garage sale thing. Oh, yeah. Everybody's looking for a 17th place trophy. That's meaningful stuff. You know what happened to all the stuff? Got kicked to the curb. It was one of the 27 huge garbage bags of stuff that we had piled up like cordwood out along the curb for the garbage 
collection folks to come along and take because what was once very meaningful for them, once life had developed a different and fresh perspective, now became worthless to them and worthless to anyone else. And they considered it garbage that was to be thrown away. That's what Paul says. He says, I don't disparage my past. I did a lot of stuff that was very good. I have appreciation for much of it. But he said, once Jesus intervened in my life, I had a whole new perspective about what it meant to have a relationship with God. And I discovered that those well-intended, well-meaning things became worthless to me in terms of rightly aligning with God. He said, it used to be about who I was and what I did. And now I've discovered that it's about who he is and what he's done. When Jesus said it's finished on the cross, Jesus said a foundation of a relationship with God is 100% who I am and what I've done. Paul's language for that is this. I am now pressing into Jesus to know him because it's not about a righteousness that comes from the law, my doing good stuff, but it's a righteousness that comes from faith through him in Christ Jesus. This one thing I do, forgetting what's behind. It's very interesting for us to note this, our own journey in this regard and to watch it in the lives of others. When Ann and I uh, were uh, 13 years old, we met each other. First day, eighth grade. Isn't that sweet? Love at first sight. That's a nice time for you to say, ah, some of the rest of you should join the rest of the group. Very nice. Thank you very much. September the 3rd, third period, English class. Mr. Carlson was the teacher, sat across from each other, made fun of each other's middle names. If that's not love at first sight, eighth grade, I don't know what it is. Beautiful thing. We did wait a few years to get married, uh, <clears throat> 10 or so, and long courtship. Got married when we were 23, uh, launched a church in our hometown uh, six months later. Uh, our hometown's a, a mountain town in Oregon, and we'd come back from uh, uh, a few years at Eugene, the University of Oregon, and got married and started this church. And it was really fun because, um, well, it's kind of an odd thing. It's a paradox because it wasn't a good place for Christians. And I know the churches are supposed to be where Christians gather, but, you know, Christian people in town would visit our church, and if they had the social grace and the tenacity to stay through a whole service, they wouldn't leave until I was done. But some folks just got done before I did, and, you know, had to, had to excuse themselves early. But there was a, a lot of people who were moving up, uh, you know, from Los Angeles or the San Francisco Bay Area, and, you know, this is 30 years ago, this is old school, this is hippie days, and and they were kind of living up in the mountains there. Most of them were involved in creative agriculture, we called it. <laughs> and they'd, they'd kind of filter back to town to get supplies. And they heard about this little church that was starting that kind of sounded fun. And they'd come and discovered Jesus. And many of them began to commit their lives to him. And it was just a, it was really a fun time for us. And, and announcements were the highlight of the service. You know, I our family rarely goes to church on Sunday and says, boy, I can hardly wait for the announcements. I mean, they're good. You know, announcements are good, aren't they? They're helpful, but usually not the highlight. But you would have loved the announcements in the church that we started. It was like, it was like, hey, folks, you know that, that 
that bucket outside with sand in it, yeah, that is a place for cigarette butts, but just tobacco products, okay? It is not cool to smoke dope in the church parking lot. It is not cool. Announcement time. One of my favorites this time of year, we'd have to say, folks, this is not a clothing optional church. It is not. Certain body parts must be covered and should be contained throughout the entire service. Yeah. Nobody had any money, so the offerings were pathetic at best, but they went from bad to worse, and we began watching. It's because people were not only reaching in to drop in, but reaching in to take out. You know, it's just like communal deal happening. So the announcement, hey, we love each other, we'll help you out, but you can't self-select, okay? That offering thing has to go all the way to the end, and then you can talk to somebody about maybe, you know, getting some financial help. Well, in the middle of all that, a former governor of our state began attending the church. He drove about an hour and a half each way to get there, he and his wife. And they'd bring friends, and he was absolutely intrigued by this. Well, you know, can you get better entertainment than that on Sunday morning? It was kind of like visiting the zoo. But he said to me one week, he said, you know, we'd love to, I'd love to bring other friends. But he said, you know, they're not going to drive that far on Sunday. Could, could we maybe do this kind of a thing in our house each week? And so we started a Tuesday, meeting, Tuesday night study in their home. And before we would get into scripture, we'd have a discussion about kind of what was happening in our lives. There were 15, 20, 25 people that would show up. And every Tuesday, he would go to visit men who were on death row at the state penitentiary. And I never understood the connection, but I've kind of speculated. It's because when he was governor, he actually held the power of their life and death in his hands. He could have commuted or he could have uh, pardoned them, and, and he didn't. And, and now he would visit them. And man, he would, he would share Jesus with them. He would say, you'd meet with a guy. John, you're one of the guys on death row, okay? Just hypothetically and everything. He'd say, John, you are bad. You've done bad stuff. And you're going to die. I mean, either the hand of the state or by old age, you're going to die. And when you die, you're going to face God and you're going to go to hell. I'm going to tell you something, John. You can go to heaven though. Because Jesus Christ came and paid the capital punishment for your sins, the bad stuff you've done. And Jesus now is alive to forgive you. And if you acknowledge that you need him and accept his forgiveness, he'll give you a fresh, clean start in life and he'll come and live in you. And regardless of when and how you die, you're going to go live with him forever in heaven. You need to accept Jesus. And one Tuesday night, he told us about one of those guys who'd committed his life to Christ. And the governor just told us with joy and enthusiasm and tears genuine excitement and we applauded and we were thanking Jesus and then we opened the Bible and then the governor started arguing as he always did about Christ's claims on his own life because he thought God would judge on the curve and he was just frankly too good to need what the bad guys really needed See, the Apostle Paul talks about three decisions. We're moving now to the third and the last one. The first decision is to acknowledge. It's where Jennifer is of discovering that she needs to acknowledge that as good or as bad as she is, it's really not the issue about a relationship with God. Aligning with God starts with what Jesus did for us. It does not start with me. It starts with him. The second decision is the one that the governor struggled with and eventually came to decide, and that was to accept. The first to acknowledge, I need Jesus, and then to accept his gift of forgiveness. 
And the absurd decision comes around this question of now, where are you focusing? Paul says this, this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind. I'm now focusing toward what's ahead. I'm pressing on. I'm straining toward. I am striving for the goal. The slacker would say Jesus did it all. Paul says, no, what Jesus finished was founding a relationship with God through him. But he wants a genuine relationship, a relationship that's a partnership. It's reciprocal. He does his part. You do your part. Three weeks ago yesterday, our son was married in San Francisco Bay Area. It was so much fun. I'm still basking in the joy of that. We just love Lauren, our new daughter-in-law. It was so much fun. They live in New York, and as they were getting ready to get married, they went to premarital counseling. It was very cool. They go to a church where the a church plant, a young church, where the pastor is a 40-year-old single guy. He's never been married, and he was doing their premarital counseling. It was a beautiful thing. And I told them, listen carefully to him, because I said, you know, he can, he can give you expert theory. It's like people who write books on parenting, it should be before they have kids. It's, you just, you're able to just do it from this theory. They had premarital counseling. They, they actually got to meet with some of the couples in the church too. And why were they doing that? Because they were going to form a partnership for life in a marriage. And as they aligned themselves together, they wanted to come into that relationship with as much self-awareness as possible and to disclose as much of that with one another. Who am I? What are my dreams? What are my hopes? What are my aspirations? What are my preferences? What are my goals? So that they could align themselves together in this reciprocal relationship called a marriage. The Apostle Paul tells us that marriage is the greatest metaphor we have of what a relationship with Jesus is like. Jesus would say to you today, I want you to participate with me in this relationship. The Apostle Paul would say this, I don't struggle or strive at all about pleasing God. I had to come 100% based upon what Jesus has done for me. I've acknowledged my need. I'm a sinner. I've accepted his gift of forgiveness. I've received that. But then he would say to us, I strive, I press, I focus, I lean in every day on doing my part in this relationship with him. I act out my part. As we pray today and conclude, my questions for you are, which place of the journey are you today? Maybe it's your place of acknowledging your need. Maybe for a savior, maybe as a follower of Christ, it's an area of need where you need his touch and grace today, a place of healing, a place of restoration, the need for courage, the need for direction. What do you acknowledge your need today? And what are you accepting from him today as we pray? For some, it's forgiveness. For some, it's his grace. For some of it's direction. For some, his restoration. And then for some of us today, the question is, and how are you going to act that out this week? You've already started it really well, haven't you? By being here in this place, a place of getting to know Jesus better. Tomorrow, many of you will get up and you'll start some one-on-one time with him. Later in the week, some of us will break off into small groups, either formal or informal, and hang out with other people on similar places in the journey. But the question is today, how will you act in that reciprocal relationship as well? Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your love. You're just amazing to us. Thanks for your grace in this church, in this valley, in this community. What an amazing thing you're doing. It's a beautiful thing. Journey 
is a beautiful thing. But Lord, it's also made up of people. Each one of us, like we sang this morning, have our own places of brokenness and hurt and need. Oh, it feels good to come to you and just to be honest with God and say today, God, I acknowledge my need for you. And God, I receive from you your gift to meet my need. For some of us, Lord, that's forgiveness. We acknowledge as, as the governor came to the place of saying, God, I forget my own goodness. I lay it aside. I need your righteousness. I'm a flawed person. I failed. I confess that to you, and I receive your gift of forgiveness today. Come and make me new inside, and come and live in me, and now help me live every day as a follower of you. And then, Lord, for some of us today, our prayer is, Lord, thank you for this kind of kick in the pants today of just to kind of get back at it, uh, pursuing a relationship with you. It really is for the rest of my life about partnering with you and getting to know you better and better. We pray these things. Now, with people still with their eyes closed to just kind of giving others a sense of privacy, I'm opening my eyes real big right now, and I'm going to ask, today, if, if today was your decision point of getting right with God, when I prayed that prayer, you said, that was me, Jared. I was praying with you. I, I confessed my need for God and I received his forgiveness today. And today is my day of kind of driving a stake in the ground of saying, from this day forward, I'm going to be a follower of Christ. Would you share that with me? It's a one-on-one -on -one deal, just the two of us, by opening your eyes real big, looking my way, kind of slipping a hand up so I can see you and just give me an opportunity to say welcome to you. Looking across right now, eyes open, hands up. Was today your day of saying, today's my day of getting right with God? All right. Oh, awesome. Lord, thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.